This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. G'day, this is Robert Lukens. I'm here talking to Sam Elliott on the Right Way Podcast about my new novel, Loveland. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Rob Lukens, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. The person whom you just heard introducing this episode is none other than tonight's guest, Robert Lukens. Robert Lukens uh, rose to prominence within the contemporary Australian literary scene with his incredibly well-received uh, debut novel, The Everlasting Sunday. And since then, uh, Robert uh, now followed up with his second novel, Loveland, is, which is what we discussed. Uh, Loveland centres around main character May, who, uh, whose grandmother has passed away. Uh, unbeknownst to her, she has left a property in... Uh, seemingly backwater Nebraska uh, within a township of Loveland uh, where that's the, the the property that's been left for is kind of the uh, where the name for the township uh, is taken from uh, May uh, is married uh, married to an incredibly abusive horrifically abusive partner her husband Patrick uh, and also has a teenage son who kind of doesn't really want much to do with her either uh, she then makes the choice of jet setting halfway around the world to go and find out about this place and the sort of history uh, that is imbued there. And uh, along the way, there's a very much a, a like, I don't want to say a hero's journey, but there's certainly a character transformation there. Uh, yeah, so without giving too much about that away, that's that's kind of the crux of the story. But it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Robert Lukens about his new novel. So everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to Robert Lukens talking to me about his second novel, Loveland. Robert, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast tonight. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you. I was good hearing about um, what was going on at the launch as well. So, yeah, like you, I think you described it, likened it to the Ridgy Didge sort of return to, to events. So here's to many more of those, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels a bit like um, everyone's slowly feeling a bit more confident to go out with these things. I've been to a few launches um, since Melbourne sort of got back on its feet with these things. And there was definitely a strange atmosphere for the first few, but I think people are starting to feel a bit more normalized about it all. Well, that's good. That's so good to hear. But um, first and foremost, I always like to start Robert, with finding out where an idea started for a novel. So I really, I'm dying to know in particular with you because I read uh, about you, you know, you loving Nebraska as a kid and uh, Springsteen and all that sort of stuff. But I just, I was always wondering if it was to do with the image at the start, which is very arresting. And obviously you revisit it later in the novel or where, like what kind of, how did, how did Loveland kind of come to be? Yeah, I always find it an interesting question to answer because I don't have that moment that other writers seem to have where there's a there's a moment where you don't have an idea and then this idea descends on you and then from then on you have an idea. It's it's much more of a um a sort of nebulous strange experience for me and I often I think just because I'm always writing, I just that's the one thing I do. I just never stop writing. So it's only and I'm not always writing something that's intended to be a novel. And so it's often only at a certain point, I kind of look up and realize, oh, I guess I'm a third of a way through a novel. So this one kind of crept up on me a little bit. Um, but I, I suppose it does, it did start with Nebraska. And, and like you said, I was, I've been fixated with Nebraska since I was about 10 years old. Um, and, and it was from that, the Bruce Springsteen Nebraska album. And, and it wasn't even the music. It was just, I remember sitting on my living room floor in front of my family record collection, sort of thumbing through the vinyls and coming across that, that Nebraska album cover, which um, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, but it's a, it's an incredibly striking photograph taken from the inside of a, an old beat up American pickup truck, looking out at this, this sort of slightly ambiguous daytime, nighttime, black and white image of this impossibly distant horizon. And it just and there's snow built up on the hood of this truck and it's just such a beguiling and strange and mysterious image that to me it was I was a quite sheltered sunshine coast kid growing up in Queensland and I didn't know much about the world and and the image presented in that just in that photograph on the album cover was just such a such a distant and alien and mysterious thing to me uh, that I became really quite fixated on and even this word Nebraska like what what is this place? Where is this place? And, and over the years, I, 
I certainly read as much as I could about the place, but I also just, I really did invent this kind of personal mythology about the place. I used to just daydream about Nebraska and what this place could be. Um, I know the, like the Bronte sisters had this imagined world that they all would um, disappear into and write stories about. And I, I feel a bit like Nebraska is that, that place for me. It was just this big blank space on the map that this Sunshine Coast kid could invent into being. And so, and Nebraska really weirdly became, as the years went on, it became a kind of a refuge for me. And I always thought, kind of strangely in the back of my mind, I always thought if everything went wrong in my life, if everything, the wheels just fell off entirely, I could always escape to Nebraska. That was the place I was going to go when everything had gone wrong. So it was always this place where I thought I could go and, and, and be anyone I wanted to be, to reinvent myself. It was this place you would go at the end of things. And so when I started writing this novel and there's, there's characters in this novel who sort of feel like they're reaching this uh, point of no return in their life. It just, it just happened. It just, I felt myself writing it into the story that they, I, I took them to Nebraska. And to me, it just felt like such a natural thing because Nebraska is this, this imagined Nebraska is a place that I'm so familiar with, but I totally understand why everyone I comes across this book. The first question they ask is why Nebraska? Cause it just seems like such a, um, an odd and arbitrary destination. And I, and I guess in a way it is because it's, it's a, it's a blank space on the map that I could, I could write into existence. Um, and I guess the label for that was Nebraska. So interesting. Cause I didn't read the media release until like about 20 minutes ago to find out that it was obviously um, from the childhood sort of fascination that you, you kind of fixated on it. Um, because I wanted to, to read the novel, I don't kind of like media releases kind of shaping um, what I'm finding out. I actually thought that when you, when you picked Nebraska, I thought it was somewhere that you haven't exactly chucked a dart at a board, <laughs> but you've, you've taken somewhere which the common uh, Australian might potentially know the name, but just know nothing about. And like you likened at one point, just then you were mentioning about this alien sort of scape. And I thought that that was what you, you wanted to do is to create this, scared that people might have heard the name of, but then from there you could kind of create this entirely whatever you've sort of perceived with your own imagination and then pass it off as kind of a, a real place. Yeah. Well, even, even in America, like it's Nebraska is the middle of the middle. It is the epitome of the flyover state. And even, even people have lived in America their whole lives. Nebraska is a mystery to them. Nebraska is a very strange place that people don't, don't really go to unless you, you have a particular reason. It's a, it's it's the flattest <laughs> part of America. It's kind of like in the in the flat bowl in the middle of the the country. It has no professional sports team. It doesn't have a basketball team or a baseball team or a football team. Um, it's it's a strange place even for Americans. And if you ask, I, I know people in New York and Baltimore and all these places. You ask them about Nebraska, and you, they they often just give you the same blank look that would happen if you ask someone from the Sunshine Coast about Nebraska. So, um, I think that was very appealing to me that it was this place that, um, to a large extent, I could I could. Um, I don't want to say I just invented the place. I didn't, but it's a place that I could. Um, you could overlay a kind of mythology on the place and it would fit in because it's such a mysterious and mythological place, even in America. I do want to talk about that. And you mentioned that uh, you've read as many books as you could possibly find about sort of Nebraska, because I got the, I got that impression that it was incredibly immensely researched because certainly mm-hmm. um, obviously even, even the way in which it's introduced, I think it's introduced um, my first visits, you first introduced Nebraska at dawn. And then from there, there's several different kind of sections where I think um, Gene and May drive around and there's the Goyle, the Goyle um, trip yeah. guide or something. And I'm like, well, I can never remember whether it's Goyle or Boyle because there's um, it's based on a, on a, on a series of, uh, I've became, oh, sorry, not to jump ahead of you, but it's, um, no, no, no. it's a, it's a, the characters in the story travel around sort of guided randomly by picking pages in this roadside guide to Nebraska. And, and I've, I, my life, I've been obsessed with reading. These are real things. There are so many of these, they're, they're street guides to Nebraska. And it's just such an amazing place. Every single street, every tiny town has an incredible sort of origin story. Every one of these towns was, I suppose it's a bit like if you travel into uh, sort of, I guess, any rural area in Australia or something like the, these towns that are formed there, um, they're often formed by sort of industrialists in the in the 18th century. Or there's always some strange 
you know, this town, you know, it's the classic kind of the town with the world's largest ball of twine kind of thing. So every one of these stories, every one of these towns and streets um, has some half true story or half true ghost story or something attached to this place. And, and I'm fi- I was became fixated on these and I've read every single one I could get my hands on. Um, and so the, the street guy that ends up sort of guiding our characters in this novel is um, it, I tried not to even look at any, it was just, it was sort of a half remembering of half of the stories that I've read over the years. So I liked the idea that I was sort of adding another layer to these sort of not entirely true tales of all these towns. It certainly shows. And I like that you described a little bit, just mentioned a second ago about sort of uh, enough of it to be real that you could kind of inlay your own sort of mythology there. And it certainly kind of rings true throughout. I mean, and you mentioned about like industrialists and how they kind of create these sort of towns. I think it was Judah, Judah Love, I think in the mid 19th yeah. century. Um, and then created this place. And then obviously thereafter, Moses kind of wants to restore Loveland to its former glory. What was Loveland in its glorious sort of heyday to you, Robert? How would you describe that? What is that the, the place that, uh, that Moses kind of uh, obsessively, fanatically fixates on kind of restoring Loveland? What, yeah. what, what does that look like? Well, at its peak, it was a, um, it was just, it was just a play thing for the rich really. And these are, there are, there are many of these places dotted across the center of, of the U S these are typically next to a lake or a body of water. Someone would set up almost, almost a kind of a a weekend fair. So there would be Ferris wheels and boardwalks and promenades, and there'd be a, a great restaurant and there would be street entertainment and, and, and the rich would often travel out from, from New York or, or, uh, from the west and and just kind of have come on and kind of have long weekends it's a bit like the the getaway in um uh oh, what's the patrick swayze movie where dirty dancing, dirty dancing <laughs> i don't know if you yeah. remember dirty, the oh, resort in dirty that. dancing I definitely do. But, yeah so it's a little something like that it's sort of like through the summer months uh the rich would come out and they would put on their their bathing suits and they would swim and they would be brought um you know they'd be brought fancy drinks in tall in tall glasses and at night time there would be fireworks at night. And so this was a place that, and it kind of reflects the maybe um, pre-depression America, late 19th century, early 20th century, where there was this just idea of um, endless summers for the rich and they would come out with their parasols and have this. So I suppose this is the, that's the history of, of Loveland, this, this, I guess, essentially a, a resort that was built by the Love family and ha- eventually handed on to Moses. But, uh, what was also handed down to Moses was this sort of um, gilded memory of what this place was, how great it was, the the sunshine, the riches. And in, in Moses' lifetime, this is long since gone. This all died after the depression, died after the second world war, much as these real places is do and dotted across America are these burnt out shells of these, these promenades and Ferris wheels. Um, and so I suppose Moses is attracted as much to, this kind of family mythology of what this place was. And uh, Moses starts to, he, he goes off to the war in second world war and comes back and he's just back to this, this empty husk of a place. And I think he sort of feels that this was his family, right? This was his mm. destiny. This was, um, this was his inheritance and it's, and it's now just a shell. So he's, he's attached as much to just trying to tap into this former, this almost imagined glory of the place um, that's long since gone. And it's, it's, what he thinks he he's earned. What do you think it is, Robin? I mean, that, that was one of the sort of premises or components that intrigued me is, is people being obsessed with trying to reclaim something that's kind of irrevocable, particularly within a setting like Loveland where something is forever more sort of lost. Uh, but Moses pretty much drives himself mad with the, the endeavors of trying to restore it to its former glory. What is it about certain settings and locations? Is it because it's imbued with a family history this sort of perceiving of being a dynasty or cipher dynasty. What do you think it is that people are willing to literally drive, go, drive themselves mad and or kill themselves in order to try and restore that? Yeah. Well, to be honest, I think it's just an extension of something that I feel. I think it's just an extension of something I think to not to extreme degrees like that, but um, it's something we all feel to some sense, really. I think even just the concept of it's, it's a, it's an elongated form of nostalgia really. And, and nostalgia is, is history with, with all the bad bits taken out, you know, mm-hmm. it's the, and it's so often that it's a, it's a memory. We, we have nostalgias for times that w- we never experienced, you know, we, um, I feel like that, 
that evocative thing of something being just out of reach. You know, I remember growing up and it was always my friends. They were all, they all wish they lived in the sixties or the seventies. Cause everything seemed, you know, it was, it was all just uh, Woodstock festivals and Jimi Hendrix and um, you know, and not <laughs> civil rights abusers and corruption and um, the Vietnam war, you know, it's uh, there's something incredibly attractive about um, looking at a, a boiled down version of history. If you just, if you look at the the 1950s from the right angle, and if you you close your eyes to a lot of things, it's a very attractive time. Same with the 19th century. Any time, there's something about it being just slightly out of reach. That much like this Nebraska that I built, it's a place you can just overlay all your dreams and fantasies on because it's not real. It's it's not something you experienced. It's something. It's this blank slate. I mean, is there anything more attractive than the idea of a blank slate? that place you could go to and just overlay all your dreams and fantasies and not have to face the realities of the disappointments of life or any mistakes you've made in life. So it, to me, it's just, it's just a vehicle, really. The past is just this place that it's so tempting. It's so tempting to, to overlay our dreams onto this thing and, and feel frustrated because it's out of, out of reach. And I think that's, you know, I, I, I'm not above that. Any there's nostalgia is an incredibly powerful force um, particularly when it's nostalgia for a time that you never even experienced because you can just shape it however you want. And I think that's Moses looks in this story, looks at the life around him and the life he thinks he's, he's earned and it's not there. And so he just, he, he's craves the, the, the past of his family and he tries to, to um, re-energize it, you know, like a Frankenstein's monster, try and bring it to life from the past, but it's, it's an eternal frustration. Definitely, I can totally appreciate with the era and uh, being gilded with nostalgia, and particularly if someone hasn't lived in that era, then they can just cherry pick all the best elements and completely forget any of the sort of turmoil or tumult that was going on at the time. Very much. But what about? So we talked about era. What about physical physical places? Because we talked a little bit about obviously the the formation of Loveland and what it was in its its yesteryear. I felt that bodies of water was something that featured quite heavily. I mean, obviously, there's on the cover itself as well as the you know the poison lake. And May is drawn not only to that, as well as I think Jean and Casey, they, they all are at various different times for various different mm. reasons. But May earlier on as a, as a child, I think behind their school, she's drawn to the waterfall. And, and there's kind of like, there's this, I guess the way I describe it is the surrendering of self beyond weightlessness that one feels with the water. But I kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about that, Rob, because without going into too much detail about the big nothing and what sort of eventuates mm. from that, because I kind of want readers to experience that for themselves, that kind of phantasmagoric type effect. Um, what is it about bodies of water, even if they're poisoned, and uh, mm. you're probably glow in the dark if you take a swim in one, what is it that, that humanity is drawn to them, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question, because I think it's it's something that I only really to be honest, really noticed quite a long way into this, this, this motif of this, these bodies of water, mm. um, which I'm attracted to myself. And I think it's a couple of, I think it's again, a bit like this idea of, of nostalgia, this place you can, um, it's that blank slate again, water has this almost, um, religious kind of connotations in terms of rebirth mm. you know i don't i remember being smashed in the surf when i was a, a kid and when you come out and you take that big deep breath and your body is just tingling and alive uh, there is that feeling of rebirth there's a reason why when people get baptized they get dunked in the water mm. you know there's something about um whether we whether it's conscious or not there's there's something about that mammalian response to being plunged in water that when you come out you feel you feel like for a moment life was going to be taken away from them and you get it back like that's kind of the extreme version of it but water is this thing that cleanses us water is this thing that gives us life like there's a reason why we're so attracted you know if you stay away from water for enough for a few days that's you're done for so there's kind of this um very natural attraction to water and what it can do for us because water only adds to us water replenishes us so i think i think that's part of that sense of why these people in the story are drawn to it particularly this lake it's this sort of again this kind of perfected image it's a it's the lake that uh the rich would come and dangle their toes in it was this from a distance it could be this perfect body of water but um i think there's something about because i tend to write I tend to write 
initially at least in a completely unplanned way i always just go straight to a blank page and just i try and just not to get in the way of my subconscious i suppose just those things that my mind is drawn to naturally i just let them come on the page and i kind of figure it out later but there's something that seems to happen that in that moment of just letting my subconscious steer the ship it draws these quite um I don't know these kind of like monolithic things there's like the house the lake the town like these kind of um kind of archetypes really but then there's something in my subconscious that poisons these things it's always in my first novel it was this grand old um grand old house in the english countryside but as you got closer you would see that it was overgrown with vines and it was crumbling and once again i found this lake that should be the most a lake that should be on a postcard but as you get close you get that smell of the dead fish in the salt water and you see that yellow green algae growing in there so there's something about my subconscious that reaches for these kind of uh totemic things but then poisons them so and I suppose this idea, they're, they're all drawn to this lake and it, there's this sense I tried to, it, it feels a little bit to me like, because the town, the town was built around this lake, mm. like in the, in the story, and the lake is kind of acts as this plug hole for the town. <laughs> the whole town kind of is in, in a spiral around this lake and, and in the same way that the water is, it's not being replenished. So it's just reducing and reducing and reducing and getting thicker and, and less able to give life. And it's kind of the whole town is getting swirled down the plug hole of this lake. And there's this attraction, like, like you mentioned at the start, we're attracted to these bodies of water. And so the characters literally take themselves out into the center of this lake. They just feel drawn to it. And as I was writing the story, the, the lake is the center of this story and everything revolves around it. So it, it literally and metaphorically became a, a kind of plug hole for the story. I think it's plug holes is a very good way of putting it. I like that you also said that you kind of like let your subconscious take control when you were writing. Is it, did, did I read somewhere that you wrote this um, commuting to and from, to and from work yeah, on a train? I, I write everything commuting. So until, until I was um, not allowed to commute anymore because of lockdown. Um, so this entire novel was written on the train um, <laughs> on my commute to work in the morning. So I, I quite thankfully had a quite long commute to work. And so I would catch a 550 train. So there weren't too many people on it and plant myself down in the corner of my laptop. And, and that's my writing time. Um, and there's something very, it just became, it just become, it's what I've done for so long. I don't even think about it anymore, but writing is something that I just have to squeeze into the cracks in my day. Um, and, that long train commute, there's nothing else to do, <laughs> to do on that journey. So this novel and the last novel and all the ones before that, that never left my bedroom, um, basically all written on, on commutes because I don't have much, you know, have a full-time job and um, a life and like everyone else, it's impossible to find this time. So um, I, I take a lot of, I quite like the idea of turning, it's almost like composting that time into something effective. I like the idea that that 40 minutes of what could just be brain dead time um, ended up being this novel. Well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that's uh, your process. It's a very productive way of doing things, particularly at five something in, a mor- in the morning. I mean, I used to work for a decade odd in in media and television organisation, pretty pretty horrific uh, television organisation. But I'd work overnights and stuff like that, and I did a lot on the company time there. So I guess it's kind of just finding these little niches, like you said, composting composting time is a really good way of putting that. I must admit. But also, I think like I'm quite lucky in that. Um, even if I, not that I ever get this, but if I ever did have a whole day where I, where I could write, I, I genuinely think I have, I have less than an hour's worth of productive writing time mm. in my body and brain. Even if I had a whole day, I, I can only function in the morning. I think I, can, I just, I just seem to be, you know, uh, chemically predisposed to working in the morning for some reason. Um, so I, I just cannot write after about 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm very much a morning person. Uh, And like I said, I can only really write for about 45 minutes at a time anyway. Uh, And I don't know if that's just out of, out of necessity because over the years, I just (laughs) like everyone else who tries to write, you know, there's just no time to do it. So if my brain just learnt how to just squeeze it all out in that 45 minutes, but I'm just not the kind of writer who can sit there and, and, I often wish I was, but I'm just, I cannot sit there for five or six hours mm. 
sort of stroking my chin, wondering, oh, I wonder, should I, what kind of adverb? It's nothing. It's, it's a manic, absolute flurry of half thought subconscious blurting out on the page. Uh, and then I just try and figure it all out later. Um, I'm just, I, and you know, and I think that's a, a strength and a weakness to my writing. I think it's, I love that I can do that. I know a lot of writing friends who wish that they could just explode on the page for 30 minutes and that was it for the day. But I sometimes wish I could sit there for six hours and, and ponder what I was doing. So, um, you just find what works, I suppose. Very much different strokes for different folks. And obviously evidently it works for you. Hence, hence why we're talking about Loveland, but, um, yeah, no more power to you, man. That's, that's, that's really good. I like hearing that sort of stuff, particularly as such a, it's a unique practice. I must admit it's, it's, it's someone, that I, it's one that I haven't heard all that many times. So I'm really glad to hear that it, you just smash it. You smash it in the mornings at an ungodly hour and then you're in lies Loveland. Yeah. And I think it's, it's definitely, it's something I'm actually trying to, I'm trying to experiment a little experiments too grand a word for what I'm doing, but um, like I said, there's strengths and weaknesses to that kind of writing. Cause I think I just rely in t- almost entirely on my subconscious to figure these things out. And I think it helps. I can, you know, I think it helps me write in a, in a way that feels alive and present, but um, you know, maybe there's, there's tricks I'm missing by doing that. Maybe. So I'm trying to introduce just a little, just occasionally pump my foot on the brake you know, just to, to see, cause I've been writing like this for a very long time and I'd just love to see what happened and maybe it won't help. But, um, if I pump my foot on the brake now and again and slow myself down, you know, if I, maybe I'll challenge myself more, maybe I'll have, I'll extend that thought along. And I don't know. So I'm just, that's where I'm trying to go now. Actually, it's actually about trying to write less <laughs> in the hopes of eventually writing more. Well, it feels like it's just, I mean, writing, I guess, is just one of those processes where it's just always forever kind of, um, evolving uh to, mm. to suit whatever your sort of schedule is um be it sort of work commitments like everyone uh and yeah just constantly shifting and changing evidently it sounds like that's what you're kind of experiencing now yeah this has been definitely the biggest probably more so now after my i think for a lot of writers after their first novel is published is a time of great sort of change and reflection and contemplation and all that kind of stuff but to me it's really come after this second novel um I think it's, I think it's just something about, it's like, you know, I've got two novels out now and in, in an ideal world, things going well, I might be able to have one or two more. So you start to think about, I suppose you just start, for me, I start to think about what I'm actually doing in a sort of bigger sense, I suppose. Um, you know, what I've never really asked myself, what kind of writer do I want to be? You know, I just, I've always just focused on the next thing I was writing and I wrote that and, and maybe that's the way to do it. But um you know, I, I just, I don't want to tread water. I want mm. to stretch myself and see what I can do. And I know for me, a lot of that is just that to maybe even just contemplate writing in a different way, slowing myself down and engaging the front part of my brain rather than just relying on my, my dreams to just <laughs> fall out on the page. How was, um, how was the process obviously with writing Love Land? So given that's your second novel, I mean, I speak, speak to a lot of writers, talk to a lot of debut novelists that are onto their second novel, feelings of angst. Was it a one-off? Was it a fluke? All the kind of the really toxic sort of uh, demons of self-doubt that's uh, pretty innate in the writing profession. But did you get anything like that, Robert? Or was it kind of uh, just words on a page? And then uh, how that Yeah, to, uh, to be honest, I don't have any of that. And Good. it's not, and it's not, it is, but it is nothing to do with my, a sense of, of grandeur or a sense of my writing of how great my writing is or anything. Absolutely nothing to do with that. It's just about where writing fits in my life. I think, mm-hmm. um, before my first novel was published, I, I've been writing novels since I was 14, really in a really committed and hundred percent way. I've done nothing but write novels since I was a teenager. Um, and so, for, and for a very long time, it was quite a, a pretty unhealthy attachment to this writing because I was committed to the idea of writing and not trying to get it published. I didn't send any of these things outside, let, didn't send them outside of my bedroom, let alone send them out to publishers. I was, I had this very puritanical, um, self-defeating, self-flagellating sense that I had to do my time. I had to sit in my room and teach myself how to write. And it was just me against the page. And um, I think as the years went on, I just became in in the same way that people get addicted to like going to the gym or get addicted to 
all sorts of th- you know things that are potentially are a bit harmful. Um, I became addicted to <laughs> writing novels, and and I would often I would write novels, and before I even started them, I promised myself that the second I was finished them, I would just delete them off my computer. And so there were periods where I'd make myself write three novels in a row, where the second I finished editing the novel. I just deleted the file and that's, and it was me trying to prove something to myself or I don't, I really don't know what it was. And I I have such sympathy for people who have um, these kind of, you know, it's not normally takes, doesn't normally take the form of writing novels, but this kind of damaging obsession with things like people, you know, it comes out in all sorts of ways, but people, you sometimes attach yourself to some pretty unhealthy behaviors and it really was writing novels for me. Um, and I think some, the one thing that's come out of that is that because I wrote for so long and I was never, not only not focused on publishing, but I was the exact opposite. I was focused on, with this huge chip on my shoulder, I was focused on just writing for the sake of it. Means that I, the publishing of novels sits in a very different space to me than the writing. Um, and I think I've had to do a lot of growing up over the last four years since my first novel came out, sort of work out how this all fits together now because I'm publishing novels now, which I'm just so grateful for. I can't describe it in a way that I think the the me from 10 years ago wouldn't have understood. Um, but I don't, so I suppose what I'm saying is that I don't have that. My writing isn't attached to the publishing process when I'm writing it. So I'm not sitting there worried about, what people are going to think and not worried about, you know, any perceived pressure or all this kind of stuff, not because I'm above it, but just because it's the writing sits in this very um, clearly defined space in my brain. So if there's one good thing to come out of all those years, it's that when I do write, I'm writing in a fairly, um, fairly untouchable place. Um, so I guess that's <laughs> something positive to come out of it. Well, um, First and foremost, definitely resonates with me a lot in terms of writing a lot of novels and not sending them out. I've done the same thing. I'm 30, yeah. I'm 30, 33. I've been doing it since I was 18 yeah. and um, wrote a lot of shit, wrote a lot of shit, wrote, wrote, about, wrote about 10 novels that are all pretty shit. Yeah, um, of course. And that, but that, and, and I think there's more of us than I think we let on. We kind of meet people and, you know, and everyone's got the, well, a lot of the vast majority of people have that the stuff in the back of the cupboard. Um, and, you know, I think there's like, like, you know, like I'm sure you found speaking to all these writers, there's, there's, there's as many ways to skin a cat as there are people, um, you know, and it's just finding for me, the biggest thing has just coming to a place where I'm, I have such like writing for me now sits in this place that I'm just so incredibly grateful for. And I think before it wasn't about that. It wasn't a peaceful place. It wasn't a place of gratitude or satisfaction or contentment. It was this quite, um, quite dark place. Mm. Um, I, I would stubbornly write things to not show anyone like what it's, a, you know, and I think, I think I did learn to write whichever way I can write now just completely came out of me sitting in my room doing nothing but reading and writing. Um, but I, I'm most gratified for the fact that over the, just in the last few years, since my first book came out, my relationship to my writing has changed just so much and it sits in such a more peaceful place now. Um, and I think a lot of it is to do with the, just the people I've met because I didn't, I didn't know any writers four mm. years ago. I didn't know any readers really. I didn't know any booksellers. I didn't know any people at festivals. I didn't know all these people. And my writing was just this thing that bounced around inside my head. Um, and now I realize that it's that there is an incredible ecosystem out there of people. And I, I can't tell you what it feels like to have someone read your novel and talk to you about it. <laughs> I mean, it seems like such a, uh, maybe a quaint or slightly, you know, smushy thing but it's um it's quite incredible to having spent my life not allowing myself to be part of a sort of circular system just it was this insular system to have that kind of circle come back good or bad it's it's pretty incredible and it's not about you know i've had i'm quite happy for people to read my novels and not like them or not connect with them that's that's amazing i think that's you know it's completing that circle that of why i loved 
reading in the first place when I was 10 reading Stephen King novels, you know, this, these were magical things. Um, and Stephen King was a real figure in my life and all these writers were real figures. Cause it was kind of this, um, they wrote it and I read it and it felt like this kind of circle. So to just to be a part of that now, I just, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I look back now and I think of how close I came to never getting in touch with that because I had just such a, <laughs> such a lousy attitude to the thing. It's interesting that you say it like that. And I mean, particularly that you've cited Stephen King, because yeah, Stephen King was the first person that I really got me into writing in the first place was kind of the people that showed me and showed me the way saying it was okay to kind of chase your imagination, even if it's dark and, you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, but the way I guess I kind of liken it to, and kind of what I'm hearing from you is that it was just a necessary journey. Like you look back, I wouldn't look back now rivally and be angry about, um, you know, all these uh, these words that have written, all these novels. Uh, the way I look back at it is there was a necessary process or necessary stage in this long sort of arduous journey to kind of get to this point where, like you yourself said, that you are reached this level of um, sort of, uh, I'd, I'd say contentment. I'm, I'm picking up contentment vibes, to be honest with you, Robert. That's what I'm, I'm picking up there a little bit. But it seems that yeah. it's, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, you go. I was just going to say in terms of, but it's it's this process and obviously you've gone through this whole gamut of different emotions about it and about the craft to get to this point you know and i think that that's 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 you know that's that's very necessary but important and yeah at times very challenging process but it's it's one that kind of everyone undergoes and it can take decades it can take only a couple of years it can take decades for me it's taken decades for you taken decades yeah here we are. I, th I think though too i'm always wary of kind of um putting on too much of a pedestal, the idea of the kind of walking over glass approach to, to art, you know, that you, that you necessarily have to wear the hair shirt and whip yourself in with these things. Cause I also know, I know a bunch of writers who loved reading, you know, did a course in writing, got a, got in the writer's group, had a nice time, had drank cups of tea and wrote really good novels. You know, there's, there's different, <laughs> I suppose I'm just very wary of, um, telling those stories about particularly the way I um, sort of suffered in my room for so many years and sort of romanticizing that too much. I think um, I wouldn't change it for a thing, if anything, just because I'm just so appreciative now of uh, God, the fact that I can write a book now and there's a reasonable chance that it will get published now. Like I just can't, I can't believe that. Um, so I think, yeah, there's also, <laughs> there's, there's, there's so many ways to do this and uh, it's not necessarily about um, having to beat yourself up before you can get to that place. But you'd certainly need to, I think, some kind of journey needs to take place and it's not necessarily always in front of a blank page. You know, sometimes it's just about where you are in your life or um, I think there's so many ways to do these things. But um, I suppose, yeah, like you said, uh, all I can say is that there's, you can redeem from those dark places and, and, it, and it puts things into sharp relief when you get out the other side. So one of the uh, main sort of core components of the podcast I always like asking about uh, is the hardest point that a writer has gone through in their journey to get to where they are now, uh, be it a, a prolonged period or a, like a turnabout moment, one particular yeah. point. And I mean, you've, you've, you know, alluded to or described some of your journey, but I haven't heard one particular point that you've mentioned about, you know, again, like all this sort of different sort of emotions, some of them pretty bad, um, but you, know, you went through them, but was there any one particular experience, Robert, or period that you went through where you were like, this, this, this I'm going to give up now. And if so, what kind of uh, made you prevail? Yeah, look, to be totally honest about it it's probably been the last four months of my life mm. uh, i think i suppose i'm 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 there needs to be a reason to write mm. there needs to be something fueling that that engine something going in there um and i suppose now and something yeah for some reason putting out this my second novel was kind of more significant to me than my first um it was a bigger process i worked I worked very hard on my first book, but it was, it was a different process. Um, and I, I really went, felt like I went through something in the second book coming out. And I think part of it is the first time in my life thinking, why am I doing this? Not, and you know, it's something I just never questioned before. It's just writing is just such a part of my life and my day that I never question it. 
And it is these questions around what am I doing? What, what kind of writer do I want to be? What kind of books do I want to put out? Do they, do I need to write now that I've had books published? Do I, where is that energy coming from? Do I still have that, that hunger for writing? Um, And to be honest, it was just the last four months. And I don't, I don't know if I got to the point where I was thinking I'm going to pack this in, but I certainly have gone through periods in the last few months where I thought maybe I won't try and publish again. Mm. Um, I'm happy to say I'm absolutely well and truly past that period, but I think it was actually a really useful period because I think I'm, I'm actually hungrier now than ever to keep publishing because um, I think I've just kind of really connected with this sense of purpose about my writing now and the, and what the, the privilege and satisfaction that it, that it gives me. And that's kind of attaching itself now to things being published that um, I do want things to be published now in the way before I sat there sort of pretending like I didn't care. Now I, I do care and I, and I want to write really well. I want to become a better writer. I want to write from a deeper place and from a further place and explore things more and challenge myself. So don't just sit there and vomit everything on the page relentlessly. What happens if I force myself to think about what I'm doing? Um, so I think the last, honestly, just since Christmas, I've gone through quite a little uh, minute to transformation with my writing and I've come out the other side and I'm, like I said, I'm hungrier than ever to keep writing now. Um, but I think it's the first time in my life I really thought, why am I doing this? You know, because it's easy when you're, in a sense, when you're starting out, because I guess for a lot of people, it's this thing on the horizon, which is getting that first novel published. Um, and what do you do when you're on the other side of the hill? Like, do you still have, I, I actually, um, Kate Mildenhall, who's a ex wonderful Melbourne writer and she runs um, another writing podcast. She told me last night that um, she did the, did the research. And I think it's something like 43% of first Australian novelists go on to publish a second novel. So the, the majority of, us, of writers don't publish a second novel, either that or the stats the other way around and that 43% don't. But anyway, let's say 50%. So half of novelists get a novel published and never publish again. Like mm. what a, it's, it's a fascinating number that I've never come across before, but I think it's, I, I understand it because I think for a lot of people that focusing on the first novel being published is the fuel to that, that engine. And then when they get it done, where does the fuel come from, you know? And I think for a lot of people, it's a confronting experience having that novel come out because then that novel exists in the real world where there's, you know, you do some interviews and you do some, you're lucky enough, you might get a review or two or something. And then the next month, there's a whole new bunch of books come out and it's hard for people to compute. So, um, yeah. So if I had to say the hardest writing period of my life has been the last four months and I'm pleased to say I'm, I feel like I'm out the other side and I'm, well, I feel stronger than ever. I'm pleased you are as well. So, what, what, where did these questions arise from? Was it, was it just, was it just, just accumulation of different sort of factors? Was it kind of like the tail end of pandemic stuff? Like, what, where did they, were, were they always lurking there, and they just kind of came to the fore? With, I don't know. Like, how, how did this, how did this period arrive? Yeah, I think to be honest, it was just, um, like you said, there is that feeling. Fluke isn't the right word when you get your first book out, but there mm. is. It, it could be an isolated incident. Um, but also it kind of just, you're so wrapped up with it coming out. You're so wrapped up with finishing it. That you don't, I don't know. It would be silly to, after your first novel to consider like where that book fits in your canon of work. You know, you haven't got one yet, <laughs> but then I think it was something about my second book came out. And I, for the first time, I just suddenly was struck by the, by the idea that I might in, like I said, all things being well, I might be a writer who puts out some books like a bunch of books, maybe enough books that I'll look back on and think that was a, that was a writing career, I suppose, using that silly word. Um, and that really floored me. I suppose it's because I'm, I'm a reader. I love writers. I love when I discover a writer I love, and then I read all their books, you know, and I do read those bodies of work and they're just such incredible things. And that's just something I'd never considered before. So I think I got really tied up with this idea of, do I need to decide now what kind of writer I want to be? Do I, why am I writing? What, what does it give me? You know, uh, what's that fuel going to be? And I think I just had to um, find something to, to fill that space. And it is, you know, it's a kind of cheesy thing to say, but it is, I just, I just want to become a better writer. And that's, that's what's going to fuel me. And if I feel like I reach a point where I can't 
keep improving. I, you know, maybe there won't be any logs to throw on the fire anymore. We'll see. But um, you know, you you need to keep fueling that fire. And for me now, it's it's just doing more and trying harder. Yeah, I, the thing with the that you just mentioned there about throwing the logs on the fire and wondering wondering if it's always going to dry up. I've always wondered that too. But I guess, and I mean, like just by virtue of what you kind of described there with your own sort of journey there, and some in many similar ways in terms of just the amount that you've produced over the years. And I always think that too when I'm starting the next thing is, oh, this will be the last one. I won't be able to ever come up with another idea. Nothing's ever yeah. going to sustain me again. And then it does. It happens again. I guess it's kind of like yeah. when you look at, at, at if you've got, you know, like a boring office job or you're doing a university degree, if you think of it in its totality and its final point, uh, then it's it's beyond you. It's unknowable because you're just like, well, that's that's just that's just too hard for me to even kind of possibly contemplate what that's going to look like, what I have to enjoy, yeah. everything which I have to go through in order to get to that point. But I guess, and it's, it's kind of a truism, but the, the the day by day sort of attitude of just continuing along, day by day, uh, and then it kind of comes to fruition. Then the next sort of idea comes. Who is it? Is it what's that guy? I haven't read it. Someone else told me the quote. Barfall and you know something and he talks about riding uh, like you're a pantser i guess it's more if you're a pantser but mm. riding is it's like driving on a highway at night when it's foggy and there's you can only see in front of you you know a car a couple of car lengths away um so you can't see very far ahead of you but you can yeah. still make the journey this lengthy journey through yeah. doing that so I don't, know. I don't know yeah and i think part of it is feeling um i mean that that's the only i try not to give writing advice too much only because <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think there's practical writing advice you can give. And I think that's definitely worth giving, but I try not to give any too sort of um, philosophical writing advice only because I think sometimes finding, finding your own writing advice for yourself is really the only way. Mm. Um, but uh, I suppose one, the only thing I, I sometimes say, if I'm asked to, to offer some writing advice and it's kind of from meeting a lot of, people I know who are writers and maybe they haven't had their first book published in the notes. There's some people have this underlying sense that you need to get to a place where you know what you're doing mm. <laughs> and that the thing holding them back is, Oh, you know, I've got to just, I'm got to keep learning and I'm not saying to not keep learning and keep trying, et cetera. But I'm just saying people think that there's this moment where people have this eureka moment and go, ah, I, I know how to write now. I know how to write a novel, but it's, it's an eternal, like I, I loved that quote you brought up about, driving at night in the fog that's even if you have your headlights on full beam you can only really see 20 meters in front of you and um but i think that there's a there's something incredible to that there's something there's a you know thrashing around desperate in the dark that's a really interesting place to write from you know writing from a place of searching writing from a place of confusion and trying to figure something out like if there's one thing a novel is to me it's trying to figure out some very a whole series of confusing thoughts and questions. It's not about coming to a conclusion, figuring something out and then popping it on the page. Mm. It's, 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 it's blurting out all of your half thoughts or your half ideas or your questions onto a page. And then over time, maybe not even answering them, but just um, sort of propping them up so that you can actually see them finally under some light and see what you're thinking. Um, so I think that there's, I suppose I'm just trying to say that for me, for depending on obviously it depends what kind of kind of writer you want to be, but I know for me, um, you know, it's a it's a daily exercise in in confusion and darkness when I when I write. Um, so to, to not feel so bad if you're at a place where you feel like I don't know what I'm doing because I feel like that every single day of my life. I think I, I agree with you. I feel that it's it's definitely uh, that's the best sort of source or place to be when it comes to it, is posing questions that you yourself can't answer. And it's doing your head in trying to articulate the thoughts even to yourself and your own sort of inner monologue there. So to bring that out onto the paper, this kind of hackneyed mess of a first draft. And then, yeah, like you said, you might not answer the questions, but they'll take some shape and form. And a lot of the time it won't even be something in which you originally envisioned in the first place. You might have this sort of glimmer of an idea and then something completely different at the, the tail end when you kind of finished it or as much as you're yeah. going to. And there's definitely this idea the way I've sort of come to understand the, the novels that really speak to me are the ones that essentially become very well articulated questions mm. as opposed to well articulated answers. Cause the questions that novels ask are the same questions we all ask and everyone's been asking for 
all of recorded and non-recorded history, which is who are we? What are we doing? Is it all worth it? Who do we love? All these things. Why does it hurt so much? Um, all these questions that not, I don't, I don't go to a novel to expect um, someone to give that, give me that answer, but um, to find a, a beautifully rendered articulation of those questions is something that um, we all have that experience of those novels ringing true. So yeah, so spot on. Oh, Robert, it's been absolute um, pleasure. I had all these, I had all these lovely and related questions. I'm going to have to meet up with you in the fullness of time to discuss them because I've got all these questions I was going to ask. But that being said, I'm not, I'm not sad about how the trajectory of the, the discussion went because it just, it was one of the most um, kind of like honest and earnest about uh, the craft of the crazy craft of writing. So it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you on the show tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Look, if in my experience, anytime two writers get together, it becomes a therapy session on writing. So it's absolutely <laughs> as it should be because, um, you know, why are we doing this? Um, well, I guess that's, that's the question you try and answer when you write your novels, I suppose. Thank you so much for talking to me tonight, Rob. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So everyone, there you have it. That was me talking to Robert Lukens about his new novel, his second novel, Loveland, which is now out available in all good bookshops. Uh, so yeah, huge thanks to Robert for talking to me on the show tonight about Loveland. It was an absolute pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure reading his book as well. Um, and uh, thank you to you as well, dear listener, for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program, as well as, you know, I'm going to say it, the ever-proliferating back catalogue of the show that's there, that's uh, extend- extending back as far back as... Uh, I think October, November of 2020. So, uh, you know, uh, well, that's, what's that? Like 18 months, getting 18 months into the into the show's life. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting. I'm certainly proud of that achievement. It's been a crazy, topsy turvy roller coaster ride, Mr. Toad's roller coaster ride of uh, of an adventure. Uh, but in that regard, there is more to follow, much more to follow. I'm aiming to take a bit of a kind of a slightly longer uh, than halfway year year break. Uh, in terms of taking a little bit of a break around August time. Uh, I've got a wedding to attend to and a few other bits and bobs, plus, God forbid, my own sort of riderly pursuits there as well. Um, But prior to that, and yes, during the lead up to that period, there's going to be a hell of a lot more guests coming up, uh, which I'm incredibly excited about. But yeah, in the interim, thanks so much for Robert once again for talking to me on the show. Thank you so much for you listening to this particular episode of the show. Be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify if you haven't already, so you can stay abreast of any and all sort of uh, episodes that drop, as well as making sure to follow the show uh, and my riderly page, my author page on Instagram there. So the right way, podcast one word i believe as well as samuel underscore elliot e double l i o double t underscore author at instagram or at, yep whatever that is and yeah check those check those out so that you can keep abreast on the socials of what's going on as well but in the interim i thank you very much for listening to this episode and i bid you all a wonderful toasty evening <laughs>